boy, do we have a treat for you today. We, we have been on, uh, we started last week on the uh, workplace series, really looking to speak into some of the specific issues uh, that we face on a day-to-day basis in our workplaces. Pastor Sai uh, 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 kicked us off last week, and we, we looked at issues around identity, especially within the context of our work and what God has to say about that. Uh, and today, uh, we're going uh, to look at issues around, uh, issues emphasis, with emphasis on uh, conflict uh, within, within the workplace. Uh, and uh, we have two amazing people. Uh, that are going to be tag-teaming together uh, to deliver this message and also speaking from some of their own personal insights uh, in the, having been in the trenches. So I, I, uh, I think these two are amazing, and I want to read you their, their bios because I think that um, I, would not do it, uh, I would not do it justice. So we're going to have uh, John Webb and uh, Snetemba Butelezi, and they're going to be uh, tag-teaming together. Let me, let me introduce you a little bit to John in case you, you haven't met him before. Uh, John Webb is currently a treasury manager who strives to be a leader of market risk management in Omnia, a JSE-listed company. John specializes on the identification and qualification of market risk exposures, and then works to develop and implement strategies to effectively reduce or navigate risk. Some of you are like, what's that in English? (laughs) John has not always been using his head for for the finance world and used it to run into people when he played provincial rugby for the Golden Lions. Yeah, (laughs) He since has effectively managed a multi-billion rand hedging portfolio, worked in five countries, and managed projects in 13 countries with no less than six concussions from his rugby playing days. John is a qualified member of the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants. He holds a BCom Honours in Financial Management from the University of Johannesburg, where he represented his university and South Africa at a major global business competition. He also holds a BCom Accounting undergrad degree from UJ. John is also a bilingual American. (laughs) That means he speaks English and American. (laughs) He's a proud husband to his wife, Imka, a passionate father to his daughter, Lacey, and most importantly, a son of the Almighty God. After him, Snitemba is going to come up, and so let me introduce you to Snitemba. Snitemba lives to manifest dreams. An architect by profession who over the last seven years has worked in the corporate sector designing and managing the construction of a range of educational buildings, shopping malls, and office interiors. Snetemba is a leader who combines knowledge, creativity, and strategy to mobilize a vision for society where developments in the, uh, where developments in the building environment close the gap between all race and economic classes. Crazy enough to pursue her purpose in affordable housing and student accommodation, Snetemba has recently taken on the challenge of establishing Vusa Africa Architects, an architecture and development consultancy firm which is closing its first 18-story transaction. She is a mother to a 10-year-old son, Vumelani, and a student in the MBA program at IE Business School Madrid, 
where she is, when she's not working, Snetemba spends her youth in her hometown, Durban, and serving in the 12 o'clock service at Every Nation Joburg. Come on, these are heavyweights, guys. Help me welcome up John and Snetemba to follow. Thank you, Pastor Loreco. Man, I had fun writing that bio, writing all those concussions in there. Lucky I can't write anymore with all of them. Okay. So, we've done the intro. We know where we're coming from. Pastor Sai uh, opened last week by telling us about Daniel, a hero of faith, hope, perseverance, and really just trusting in the promises of God. Um, firstly, I want to say hello to my cute daughter and wife who are here for the first time. My little Lacey is five weeks old, and this is the first of thousands of lectures she's going to get from me, so listen up, little girl. But today, we're moving on. We're going to be handling conflict. Something all of you like, oh, yeah, mm mm-hmm, my boss, that colleague, I can see a few of you laughing, yeah, that's true, Uh uh-huh. We're going to talk about those today. We're going to give you a strategy looking at the life of Daniel, a man who circumnavigated this so successfully and really was a champion in this. And you may have even missed it because you kind of thought, oh, he interpreted dreams. Okay, that's nice. So let's premise this by saying that Daniel was chosen. And we started with Daniel chapter 1, verse 17, and it said that he was chosen by God, him and his friends, Meshach, Radshach, and Abednego. And they were purposeful, they were wise, and they were full of knowledge. And God put them in a place where they needed to be. So why don't you open your Bibles if you've got them? If not, open your phones like I have. Daniel chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. And so to preface this, if you guys think you have a tough boss, you've seen nothing yet. We're about to read who the toughest boss ever was. So King Nebuchadnezzar, who conquered Judah, and was king of Babylon, had a dream. And this is how it goes. And the king said to them, as he's speaking to his wise men, I've had a dream. And my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans, or the wise men as I'm going to say from now on, spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the wise men, my decision is firm. If you do not know the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut into pieces and your house shall be made of in a, a heap of ash. Singular. So he might even destroy your house and then sweep up the little remains, you know, just to add insult to injury. This guy was a bad dude. And then in verse verse 12, it goes on to say, For this reason, the king was angry and very furious. And he gave command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon who couldn't interpret and tell him what his dream was. Any of you? Raise your hand. Who who had that happen this week? (laughs) Oh, no one. Okay, yeah, I didn't think so. If you did... Ministries free team is up front. Uh, please come see us, CCMA. There's a lot of other options. Don't worry. We'll get you out of it. We love you, okay? Now, this is what Daniel's sitting in, right? I mean, it, it's funny to joke like this, but none of us can even comprehend this kind of level of conflict and, and, and hate that's really happening from a king that's just unreasonable. And I mean, that's, that's like not even your boss telling you to do something crazy. That's tell, your boss telling you, what should I be doing, and, or, or what should you be doing, and I want to like it, and then let me know. I mean, made no sense at all. 
So let's go on and let's, let's, let's see what exactly, what was Daniel's mentality towards this? Because it's very important to know, as Christians, what kind of our mentality is towards these situations. And um, what I'm going to do, just so you guys know where you are. And this is a tough one, but we, we love you and we're going to get past this. So I want you to read the, the questions up on the screen. I'll read them to you too. If you're answering yes to a lot of these, we're going we're gonna to tell you what that means. So... When you're in these kind of situations, this level of conflict, do you blame other people in situations for your misery? Do you see your problems as catastrophes and blow them out of proportion? Do you find something to complain about even when there isn't something, to, when everything's going well? Do you feel powerless? Do you believe that everyone is better off than you? And do you think that people are just straight out to get you? Now, I don't want you to raise your hands. Please don't do that. But if you're, if you're recognizing or hearing this from someone else or from yourself, I want to tell you what this is. This is, this is what's called victim mentality. Professor Manfred de Vries of the Leadership Institute at INSEAD Business School described a victim mentality, basically someone that has a mentality that he or she is overcome by the world, just everything's against them, and always at a disadvantage because of other people's direct actions or the lack thereof even. And he goes on to say that, you know, it's, Sometimes it's not even the victim's uh, fate or their decisions that make them feel like this. That sometimes even they feel like this because they actually seek out, seek out that negativity and those disappointments. And that's not right. So, I've mapped out the victim mentality on the one side. We've got a difficult situation. There's my humor in the middle. A guy trying to open a jar of pickles. Really? Nothing? Okay, gotcha. <laughs> You know, I want to quickly say that bad things, of course, don't happen. But God says that there's always a place and time to, to mourn and for, you know, to heal. And that's completely separate from a victim mentality. It's that if you find yourself in that place all the time, when you're in that workplace and you get asked to write a funny report and, and, you, and you freak out and, you know, oh, my boss hates me. How can I be doing this, you know? Don't always resort to that spot. That's when you know you've, you've gotten stuck into a bad state of mind. So what's the alternative? And what do we see Daniel doing? Well, technically, it's usually called the survivor mentality, but I didn't like that. Survivor speaks to, I made it, you know, I, I, it's a TV show, you know, I got there. But um, we're definitely, as Christians, made to strive for a lot more than that. Kingdom mentality is very different. Kingdom mentality, you know, to achieve victory, we need to have, you know, use God's favor and blessings on our life to achieve you know, success in every area of our lives. That's kingdom mentality when you get hit with those hard, difficult situations. So let's unpack this, and let's see what Daniel did. Because Daniel, we just heard, that was his boss, huh? We're going to go and see what he did, okay? This is my, one of my favorite parts. So what did Daniel do? Daniel chapter 2, verses 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek the mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of the Lord God forever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the season. He removes the kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things, he knows what, what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank you, and I praise you, O God of my fathers. 
You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we have asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. And it goes on when he actually delivers the news to King Nebuchadnezzar. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known to the King Nebuchadnezzar's what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more, more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who makes known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Dissecting that, how did Daniel really approach it? Number one, he went to his friends and said, God, help. What do I do? He went to Meshach, Redshach, and Abednego. I said, brothers, pray for me. What, you know, pray for us. What do we do? Let's cry out to God. Let's get on our knees, put our hands up. 20 to 23, right after Daniel's given the insight and given the, the dream and the interpretation, becomes thankful. He praises God. He, he for four verses, shouts God's, God's praises. And then uh, verse 28, even when he's telling the king what it is, he never made it sound like it was, it was him. He said, it was God that gave me this for you. Constantly, again and again. He said it three different ways, and he kept saying, no, it was God. It was not because I'm that wise. He kept giving all the glory to God. Isn't that amazing? And then we have the result. Daniel chapter 2, verses 46. The king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and an incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and the revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And also Daniel petitioned the king that he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king, or the courthouse of the king, it says in other versions. Basically, right-hand man. Wow. Can you believe that? That's how that scenario ended? When he was killing off all the wise men, who knew who was next? God, you know, they cried out to God. And look what happened. That situation, this is what resulted. Submission from an evil king who was unreasonable and wanted to mutilate them and destroy them and destroy their homes. What came of that? Promotion. <laughs> you know, giving glory to God. The evil king laid down on the floor in his probably beautiful palace and said, oh, Daniel, your God is the God that lives. Isn't that powerful? He declared victory over that. So how do I make this relatable? So as mentioned, well, as not really mentioned, I'm sure no one understood what I do, and it's very hard to explain to people. Um, I work for a company called Omnia, and we've just had our roughest financial year in 65 years. And uh, the last six months has just been turmoil, a place of conflict, internally and externally in the company. Just everything seems like it's, it's just a battle, and we're trying to figure things out. Um, there's been a host of resignations. There's been a lot of retrenchments that are starting to happen. And, you know, I started asking questions like, Daniel, God, why am I here? Why did you put me here? You know, what, what am I doing? You know, and anyone can relate. Every one of you has been in a situation like this at work. At work, at home, wherever you've been. 
But I had to take a, a kingdom mentality. I had to say, God, you've got me here because you want me here. You know? And I'm going to work my butt off every day to make sure that I can do whatever I can to make sure this company succeeds. So I started, and, and my boss quit. The CFO of our company, who she reported to, quit. And I took on a level of responsibility in projects that I had never thought I would do at my age, uh, where I was in my career. And, um, you know, I, I, I just strived, and I kept going, I kept going. And my victory was a small one, you know, and it's still to come. And I think God's still, still building this testimony. But the CEO of our company, it's a JSE-listed, 5,500-person company, um, caught me in a meeting one day, and there was a bunch of people sitting around, and he said, John, thank you. I, I so appreciate you sticking around, persevering, and taking on this, all this extra responsibility. Thank you. You know? It's a big moment. Thank you, thank you. You know, and it was extremely tough, and you always think, well, why did God have me here? You know, what? Was it for my personal growth? Was it to grow my wisdom and my knowledge? There's so many things that God's still doing here, you know, and I don't know if I'm going to be at Omnia forever. But while I'm there, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure I, I work and I'm excellent in what I do. And I'm going to let God use his favor and blessings to work everything else out. Because God has me there for a reason. And wherever you guys are, that's tough to hear. I know it is. Don't question God's plan for your life. God's got you where he is. I mean, look, look where Daniel was. That's extremely hard to, to be in and to see, guys. He, he was watching other wise men being shredded and killed uh, amongst him. And he came out of that, you know, being, basically becoming the right-hand man of a king that destroyed his very nation. But God had him there for a reason. So sit and wait on God. And in conclusion for me, what did Daniel do? It's amazing. You've got to revisit that. What did Daniel do? He went to his friends and he cried out to God first. So next time you're in that situation, that's where you start. You go and you sit and you cry out to God. Say, God, I can't do this. Help me. Why? Because his, his strength is sufficient for you. Number two, he became thankful. You become thankful. You thank God for every little thing that's in your life that you're thankful for. Whether it's the shoes on your feet, the bed you sleep in, it's your friend that you got to have a coffee with. You thank God and you be grateful for everything in your life. Next, with all that favor and blessing that's going to start coming at with those, God is going to give you chances to glorify his name. This may be one of mine. I'm doing it right now, glorifying God and where I am. This is my little one. Make sure, and God will give you those opportunities. And that's when he increases your favor and your blessing. So never miss that chance to tell a friend, a colleague, yo. I'm making it. You know, God's, God's helping me. God's strength sustains me. And then lastly, when all that favor and blessing is pouring in, you're crying out to God and you're being thankful, you're just going to watch that victory walk in all over your life, just like Daniel did. Thank you. Is it right? Fantastic. So during the reign of Solomon, the Israelites actually had one single nation. And after the death of Solomon, this nation was split into two independent parts. The northern part was known to be Israel, and it had its capital Samurai. And the southern part was known to be 
Judah with its capital, Jerusalem. King Jehoiakim was reigning in the land of Judah. And in this third year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar comes across from Babylon and he besieges Judah. Why is this important? I think it's important because I really want us to take a look at today's text with the understanding that sometimes God uses a whole lot of parables and a whole lot of stories that are throughout the Bible to communicate to us something bigger than what we can truly see. And today I want to focus on two overarching themes in the book of Daniel, particularly chapters 1 to 3. And I want to look at it as three parts. So it's Daniel at work, Daniel's work, and our work, and our work, and God's work. And I'll explain it a little bit. So at the time that Nebuchadnezzar was given victory over King Jehoiakim, he was allowed to take, well, I say permitted, yes, the Bible says permitted, to take sacred pieces from the temple of God, and he went back to Babylon with them, and he put them in the treasure house of his God. And that's where I start asking myself questions like, why would God allow for sacred items that were in his temple to actually go and be put away in a place where accolades and worldly treasures sit? But I then also have to ask myself the question that when Nebuchadnezzar came across and he took those sacred items, not only did he take them as captive, but he also took a group of men that were part of the royal and noble families, and he put them in captivity. And we start asking again God questions like, well, why would you let your anointed people be captured to go and serve in a different place? The reality is that Jerusalem was the city of God and Babylon the city of Mammon. And Mammon, although it's personified in Luke 16, 13, was not a deity, but it's just a common word, mammonus, that was used to describe riches in Matthew 6, 24 and in Luke 16, verse 9, 13 and 11 and 13. Here, Jerusalem is the city of the spirit, and Babylon is the city of the flesh. And we need to understand that these two cities represent a raging war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. God permits these items to leave his temple and to be stashed away in the courts of Mammon. God also allows his anointed people to be removed from the kingdom of the spirit and to be held captive in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is how we start to then understand Daniel's performance in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, these four men were well-versed in every branch of learning, and the Bible says that they were from the land of Judah, all of them. And so by this text, we're able to see that not only does God qualify the different branches of work that we work in, but he also qualifies that he took the four greatest men from the place that was of lesser prosperity and the place that was much smaller than the Israel um, northern, northern capital. And I wonder, have you ever felt that in the moment when Nebuchadnezzar captured these four men, that he picked them from a worldly criteria? He decided that they were smart enough, he decided that they were, they were royal enough, and he decided that they were fit to be captive in other words, they were qualified on a standard, but they weren't qualified on a faith-based standard. Have you ever felt that you were only good enough to serve the ambitions of others? 
I'm good enough to be in this room, but I'm not good enough for you to actually take notice of what it is that I'm saying. I'm good enough to be in this room, and I'm qualified, but I am not qualified to speak with authority over the things that I wish to change. I'm good enough to be in this room, yet I'm not permitted to bring my literature and my attire and my knowledge and my faith into my interactions with you. You see, sometimes we're good enough in the eyes of the world to serve in its courts. We are qualified by the world to live a life of service of the very things that take us away from the kingdom of God. We look around and we cannot comprehend that there is a raging war much bigger than what we see that is at the center of God's victory in and through us. You see, without getting too carried away, it's clear that something is at work. God is at work. Daniel doesn't know it yet, but he's about to be at work. His, four, his three friends don't know it yet either, but they're about to join the workforce because Nebuchadnezzar's court is about to be their workplace. And because Daniel would live to serve under three other kings, his work was actually about to be a career in the work of God. And if we were to understand these three things in the way that they play out in our workplace today, I know we can say that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah entered their workplace with new Babylonian names, Belteshar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and sometimes we enter our workplace and we have new names, doctor, teacher, architect, whatever it is. And I want to be a little bit cheeky here because I want to use the text as a metaphor for some of the situations we find ourselves in. You see, it says that the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. So this had me thinking that the structure of remuneration of our workplace is pretty much the same. So out of the coffers of what our workplace masters have, it's almost like he said, well, Daniel, here's your wages, and here's your wages, and here's your wages, and here's your wages too. And now I want you to sit in this internship period for the next three years until I qualify you further to serve on another level of captivity. And while I don't condemn the process of getting to where you need to be in your career, man, I wish we could take the view of Daniel even in that process. You see, admittedly, we have to humble ourselves to leadership in the workplace and trust that God continues to work even in the places that we cannot see. However, can we be like Daniel? Can we be like Daniel and not compromise our anointing? You see, the first thing that Daniel does, in, and he reaches deep within himself for the courage to stand against the laws that were distancing him from God. And in so doing, he leverages a platform for himself and the rest of his friends to do the same. Daniel, through his refusal to eat the diet prescribed by Nebuchadnezzar, represented the collective. And by his leadership, he led them into greater obedience and into fulfilling God's glory. You know, I started thinking that perhaps it's not so much about what it is that we're going through, but the fact that if God is raging a war that's much bigger than what we see, then the small battles within that war are actually a battle against our capacity. Our capacity to seek, to hear, to follow, and to stick with God no matter the weight of the purpose. God is raging a war in the workplace, okay? And these places are the places that we're called to serve. These are the places we spend most of our days and most of our hours in. These are the places that we probably will have the most influence and the greatest reach. There is also the fact that when we look at this text, 
it represents to us that God is not only raging war in that court of Nebuchadnezzar, but he is also raging a war against worldly kings, against idols and unrighteousness and theft and greed and arrogance and oppression and sexism and segregation and classism and racism and captivity. And these are all the things that we deal with every single day. I want to give you six principles that I think we need to put in place so that God can build our capacity. And I love how all of these principles can be found in the book of Daniel, first three chapters, so it shouldn't take too long for you to start understanding, even with those um, three chapters, what God is really saying about our work for, workplace. He's saying that our obedience to him means that we pick him as a master. No other master. He's saying that he's using every single attack of the enemy to build our capacity to endure the battles while he fights the war. People, because you see, some people have favor. God had given favor over the chief of staff to take care of Daniel and his three friends, but he turned around and he didn't work in their favor. And so sometimes even the people who we have favor don't always act on our behalf. But God teaches us and he gives us strategy for every bit of conflict and every bit of resolution to endure. And we also see by Nebuchadnezzar's actions that arrogance blinds the heart from recognizing the work of God. And that finally strongholds are broken when the work of God is complete. So if you forget any of these six principles, if you haven't written down, if you haven't taken a photo, that's fine. But I do want you to remember one thing. I'd like you to remember that what will keep us from being able to put into practice these six principles is the fact that no matter what we know as a principle, the world will attack your work because your work is valuable. And maybe I can't convince you because you feel like your work right now isn't really valuable, so I'll put it like this. The world will attack your relationship with your work and the people around you because your work is designed to make you valuable to the world. You see, our work is God's work. And here's the thing. When we try to put into place these principles and when we know these things and understanding the raging war and the enemy attacking us and attacking our relationships and attacking our progress in the workplace, we have a problem with validation. You see, later on in the text, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue, and when he finds out from the astrologers that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow in front of it, he orders them to be thrown into the blazing furnace. And this part of the text confirms to us that who may have doubted, oh, it confirms to those of us who have may have doubted the fact that Daniel was actually receiving a prophetic word by interpreting that dream. The golden head that when Nebuchadnezzar started building that golden statue, that the beginning of that prophecy was manifesting itself in Nebuchadnezzar's actions. But you see, when, he, he, when Nebuchadnezzar stood in front of the four, the three men, and said to them that I will throw you into the burning furnace, I love their reaction because they said to him, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves against you. I couldn't believe it. I don't think I'd feel the same if I was about to go into a burning furnace. You see, they said, if we are thrown into the burning furnace, the God whom we serve will be able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty, 
But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you've set up in front of us. So basically they said, with all due respect to you and all the power that you have, we serve someone greater and, yeah, your majesty. <laughs> so I had one of these... Um, approaches last September, and um, it's a difficult story because, you know, I had been headhunted from my last job to work as a partner and a senior architect in a firm, only to find that after about six months, the company had actually set up this fraudulent sort of BE structure with my name on it, and they wanted to do this in order to accomplish a level two compliance with their biggest client. I remember asking myself whether to endure the oppression and to try to find a way to fit the purpose that God had revealed to me into this organization by being complacent. I was reminded of the age-old question, when do you stay in the courts of Satan and when do you go? How do we trust the process long enough to know when we have to leave? And like Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, my enemy was so furious that he turned the furnace on seven times um, hotter by telling HR to be around me, and he wound me up so tight with restraints of trade and MOUs that I'm pretty sure he was convinced that there was no way out. But the, proof, the truth is, we stand on the truth of who God is. And if he saves us and we stay in that environment, it is by his choice and it is for his glory. And if he doesn't save us and we have to leave, we will stay knowing that our knees bow down only to him and to no other worldly master. You see, God shows up in the public victory of Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego when Nebuchadnezzar, who tried to order their destruction, is actually the first to see them break out of those chains. Isn't it wonderful that though the enemy will turn up the heat and wind you up so tight that he's convinced God make, can't make a way, that God will make you as tough as steel when he needs to show up in you. And before I close, I just want to share one little story. I was frustrated the other day um, about a project of ours that was just taking a really long time to secure the funding, and I complained. I complained to my QS, and I said to him, listen, I don't know what's going on, and I'm not saying I want to give up, but are we really doing the right thing? I wasn't ready for the answer that he gave me, but I had to process it. And he said to me, you know, Snare, if you're racing against mere men and they tire you, how will you race against the horses? If you stumble and fall on open ground, what will you do in the thickets near the Jordan? And he made me realize that while I am still frustrated that we're, still fun that we're funding, there's still a building to build. There's still 1,600 students who need a roof over their heads. And that I cannot give up when the footmen are coming against me because there's so much more that God wants to do at the end. And so my encouragement would be that maybe I'm preaching to myself, maybe I'm preaching to John, maybe I'm preaching to a couple of other people who understand this, but I am absolutely convinced that some of you have been struggling to see the war that God is raging in your workplace. I'm also convinced that some of you aren't convinced that God has called you to serve in the work that you do. And lastly, I'm convinced that some of you identify with the sermon, but you cannot trust that God will make a way. And if that's you, I really encourage you. I encourage you to come to the front, and if you don't have to run off, please don't because we really want the ministry team to be here to pray for you. 
I see the thing is we, we want to pray for you to be renewed of the vision of your workplace. And if you're trusting God for the same, don't let the moment go to waste. I'm going to ask the ministry team to come to the for, forward and as I close by prayer. You know, we really just want to thank God for the revelation of who he is and all the things that we have to do. And know that even when we feel that we are misaligned, misunderstood, and not really in the right place, that he sees it and that he builds the capacity that we need in every single situation. And I just pray, Father God, I thank you for your presence in this room. I thank you for the wonder and the mystery of your work, the wonder and the mystery of your word, and even the fact that we would have the privilege to understand it. I pray, Lord God, that you would tug on the heartstrings of every single one of your people sitting here, and that you would give them a renewed revelation of what it is that you are calling them to do in their workplace. I thank you, Father, for all of these things, for the time that we spend as a congregation, for the fellowship that we have with one another. Amen.